I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 82 of Talking Golf History, in my sit-down with golf historian and author Stephen Proctor. During our talk, Stephen and I discussed several topics, including how his first book, Monarch of the Green, connects to his soon-to-be-released book, The Long and Golden Afternoon. We follow that with his personal journey of becoming a golf historian and author, and finally, his upcoming sabbatical to follow in the footsteps of old Tom Morris. Before we start our show today, I wanted to make sure to connect you to the Golf Heritage Society. Did you enjoy my series of interviews with Masters broadcaster Ben Wright? They never would have happened if not for an article in the Golf Heritage Society's publication, The Golf. The Golf Heritage Society is dedicated to sharing and collecting our golf history. You can find more information on the Golf Heritage Society on their website at www.golfheritage.org. And now, my interview with golf historian Stephen Proctor. Welcome back to Talking Golf History, Stephen. Nice to be here, Connor. It's been almost a year since the last time I was on this show, and I'm very excited to talk with you again and all your listeners. Has it been that long? doesn't seem like that long. No. Like, July 21st, Roger and I uh, did a podcast oh, yeah, with you last right. year, so we're creeping up on it. That's crazy. That was a great podcast on uh, the Morrises. I hope yes. everyone should go listen to that one. It's a great one. You have two great golf historians talking about young and old Tom Morris. I'll tell you a funny story about that podcast, the, the series. We made two. And I'll never understand this phenomenon, but I believe, and I may be mistaken, I believe it's the only podcast, the part two of that, it's the only podcast I've ever recorded where part two had more viewers than part one. I can't part figure that. I don't know how you start in the middle of the story. And it's it, and it might be like by 20%. So like 20% more. May, now, it could be that you at home wanted to listen to part two twice, you know, more so than you wanted to listen to part one twice. So that could be the skew. But I, I find that absolutely, it's one of the few outliers in the podcast. Usually you'll find part one and part two are either equal or part one has more in par- than part two, but never the, in, except old Tom and young Tom Morris. Well, I can't explain that, but yeah. I <laughs> a little history the in the making, folks. Yeah. <laughs> well, your your book, Monarch of the Green, was a smashing success in the realm of golf history books. You were a finalist for the USGA Herbert Warren Wind Award, and one of the greatest golf historians of our time, Roger McStravick, called you our generation's Bernard Darwin. I can't think of a higher compliment. I wonder when you started on this journey, did you see any of this coming? No. Uh, I was only hoping that someone would publish the book. 
uh, and my initial efforts to get it published were extremely discouraging. Oh, really? You know, I have a number of friends that are writers, obviously, because I was in the newspaper game. And several of them referred me to their own agent. And I sent the book to their agent in hope of getting an agent, which I've never accomplished. None of the agents ever responded to my inquiry, even though I was introduced by a friend. I didn't get a no. I didn't get a yes. I didn't get a response of any kind. Uh, I sent it to several publishers, cold calling, got no response to those either. Not a yes, not a no, just not a response of any kind. And so that, that was that was kind of discouraging. And uh, it was in the process of um, getting photographs for the book that I wound up luckily being introduced to a publisher who wanted it. Uh, all the photographs for the book were owned by a man named Peter Crabtree, who is a very famous collector, one of the founders of the Golf Heritage and, and uh, I mean, British Golf Collector Society. Wonderful man. Uh, and he, he offered to let me use the photos, but he had had uh, what he considered to be poor experiences with other writers who had helped. And he insisted on reading the manuscript first. He said, well, I'll let you use my photos if I like your manuscript. So that's nervous. I don't know. I've never met Peter face to face, but I send the manuscript and it was months and months of waiting uh, before he got back to me. And that's still the happiest phone call of my life when I picked up the phone and my wife picked up the phone actually and said, there's somebody named Peter Crabtree on the phone for you. And I said, oh, OK, so high, high tension moment. And he uh, I answered the phone. Hello, Peter. How are you? Well, Stephen, you've done something marvelous and original. I love this. And uh, so then he let me use all the photographs and he arranged for several other collector friends of his to give me uh, images for the book at no cost of any kind, which is including the cover photos. So I paid zero for the use of the photos, which readers might be surprised, listeners, excuse me, might be surprised to know that obtaining the photos and the cost of those are the author's responsibility when in at least with the publishing house that I work, which was I love and no complaints. So I was able to get those free. And it was Peter who introduced me to his publisher uh, at Berlin, Berlin Publishing in Edinburgh, Scotland. And they accepted the book. Another St. Peter in my life, Peter Burns, uh, who is uh, now has his own publishing company. But he, he accepted the Tommy book, which honestly, you know, I had had a good career in journalism, but I was completely unknown in the world of golf history. I did this because I felt like doing it. And I wrote the whole book before I ever thought about how I would get pictures or sent it to anybody to look at or anything like that. And I just sent them the entire manuscript instead of like a couple chapters to consider. And uh, so that's how I've always worked. You know, I write the things that I love writing. And uh, if there's a door open for them to be published, that's wonderful. And if not, I'll keep banging on doors until one does open. Well, so, I, don't, I don't think you're going to have any problems getting more books published now, Stephen. Well, fortunately for me, you know, the Tommy book uh, was very well received and uh, by the, the golfing community. And um, in addition to the Herbert Warren Wynn thing, I uh, was a finalist for the best sports biography of the year in Britain in their Telegraph Book Awards, which I was quite proud of. And uh didn't win either of those, but to be considered is a great honor in my view. And uh, so that has obviously paved a way for me to be able to publish more. And I'm, I'm absolutely delighted with that. Uh, I've always wanted a writer's life and now I've got it. That's right. So you have a new book on the verge of release called The Long and Golden Afternoon. How does this book connect with Monarch of the Green? 
That's a great question, Connor. So when I first went to St. Andrews in 2005, uh, another writer-driven trip because I had uh, begun to read a lot of golf history writing, uh, in particular Bernard Darwin and Herbert Warren Wind. And Herbert Warren Wind wrote a piece for The New Yorker in 1964 called North to the Links of Doorknock. And I love that piece. And of course, the more I read about history, the more desperate I was to get to St. Andrews and in particular to play the old course. So I put my name and the name of my friend and editor, Lee Horwich, into the lottery uh, in September with the hope that we would secure a tee time at the old course. And we were lucky enough to get one on our first go-round. Never succeeded again, but I did oh, on wow. the first go-round. Yeah. I've tried it multiple times since then, and I've never never been lucky. But I got lucky the first time. Once we had our tee time for uh, the following July, uh, I organized for the two of us our North to the Links of Doorknock tour of Scotland, which which we did that year. We got there on a Sunday. So I was able to go see the cemetery on Sunday, and I think I've said this before on this podcast, so I won't believe it, but I was very struck by the memorial to Tommy and decided that, you know, I had already had the idea that I wanted to do golf history writing when I retired from newspapers. And it was already clear to me that newspaper job was not going to be fun for many more years. Let's put it that way. Uh, so I decided I made a plan to retire early and to write golf history books. And I decided I would write a book about Tommy because it seemed really interesting to me. And in the course of researching the Tommy story, you know, and telling the Tommy story, I realized that Tommy is the beginning of a much, much larger story. When you start to really look at golf history, you, you realize that the game had been played in Scotland for hundreds of years, mostly without change, very incremental change at the very best. So and certainly no change of any kind, really, to speak of from the first competition in 1744 until the introduction of the gutty ball in 1848. Then after the introduction of the gutty ball, in a mere 50 years, the game is suddenly a worldwide modern game. And when you think about it, there are not that many sports that are played worldwide. And so I started to see a much larger story than the story of young Tom. I started to see the story of how does a game that is unchanged for hundreds of years in 50 years become one of the few games played worldwide? So I knew even as I was writing the Tommy book that there would be a second book involved. A big part of researching the Tommy book was to figure out Tommy's impact on the growth of the game. And when you start to research forward in the aftermath of his life, you realize that Tommy sets golf growing south of the border in a way that will be lasting. But history repeats itself, and it took the arrival of the first English champion, John Ball Jr. of Hoylake, to turn that smoldering fire that Stami had set a spark to into a true conflagration. And so my book uh, takes up the story, my new book, Long Golden Afternoon, which is this phrase taken from Darwin, as so much of my best lines are, so many of my best lines are. Uh, between 1890, when John Ball wins the Open at Presswick as an amateur, the first non-Scot, the first amateur to win the Open Championship, golf grows at an insane rate between then and the coming of the war in 1914. And during that period of time, 
the game undergoes phenomenal change on multiple fronts. Uh, basically, those include enormous advances in technology, the introduction of literature, uh, the introduction of true golf architecture in the sense that we understand it today, massive advances in agronomy, simply uh, the organization of the game and its rules. As the game spread to Scotland, people just adopted the rules that had been originally created by the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers and then modified ever so slightly by the Royal and Ancient. But there was nobody in charge of the game. And during those years, it was determined that the Royal and Ancients would be in charge of the game. So everything about the game that you think of now has its birth during that period of time between the time in 1864 when old Tom travels to North Devon to lay out the first seaside links outside Scotland and the time that the Great War comes in 1914. And that is the story of the long golden afternoon, which is basically the story of the game's coming of age after the rise of young Tommy. So they're intimately related. The story of the long golden afternoon is basically the story of what the rise of young Tommy resulted in, what happened after that, and how the game continued to grow because of his emergence and the emergence of the open champion and the various early champions like his father and Willie Park and, and all the people who contributed to uh, the popularization of the game. Do you think our golf world is any different if we didn't lose young Tom at the age of 24? Or do you think this natural progression, you know, I, it probably continues regardless, the growth of the game. It seems like he was the spark that lit that fire in the Morris family. Uh, but is, is the world any different if, if he lives a long, full life like old Tom Morris? That's a great question, and obviously there's no real answer no, to that. No, I'm just, I would yeah. say the record books would be quite a bit different than they are now. Uh, there isn't any doubt that Tommy would have won many more Opens than the four he did win. I mean, don't you, get, don't you kind of get goosebumps thinking about young Tom paired up against the second generation of Parks and an and a older young Tom against the great triumvirate? I mean... Yeah, it would have been, that, it would have been those marvelous. Those things would have been amazing to see, and it would be interesting to see. It's interesting to me that, at least that I've been able to discover through research, every single person who saw both Young Tom and the Great Triumvirate play considered Young Tom to be better than all of them. Uh, not, not one felt differently. Uh, uh, so, you know, I would expect that the, that probably the progression would have been even faster than it had been had he not died. I think it's also pivotally important that his father lived a such a long age because old Tom is the most responsible person for the worldwide growth of the game if you had to put it to one individual. And just in so many different ways, the recommending of professionals to clubs in England and around the world, the laying out of hundreds of golf courses in England, Scotland, Ireland, the uh, influence he had over the architects who would then lay out golf courses in other parts of the world. Uh, so, Not to mention know, his own son's legacy. Right. I mean, and the thing is, part of Tom's legacy was that he was the father of the greatest golfer the world had ever known. Uh, and uh, so, yes, I, I, I do think it would have been different, but it's kind of hard to quantify. Sure. 
That makes sense. So let's get back to the books here. How would you categorize the two golf history books that you have written? What type of golf history are they? For the you know the folks who haven't le- read Monarch of the Green, uh, who will buy Monarch of the Green and The Long Golden Afternoon, what should they expect? Well, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it, Connor, because it goes to the heart of something that's very important to me as a retired journalist person committed to uh, that kind of work. I feel that what I'm doing, what I call what I'm doing, narrative history, telling history, the story of history in real time. And the way I look at the world is that golf history writing has basically broken down into two categories, what I would call foundational histories. uh, And those are books like The Dawn of Professional Golf by the just great eminent historian Peter Lewis, who has also been extremely kind and helpful to me throughout this entire business. I interviewed him in St. Andrews when I was just starting on the Tommy book, and he was, gave me research of his. He was just super helpful. Those books, uh, Peter's book details everything that happened in the development of professional golf. He literally went and researched every tournament that occurred between 1894 and 1914, every one has records of them all, percentages of victories, all that sort of stuff. Those kinds of books are the dominant form of history. And of course, I could never pretend to write the work I do write without the foundational work that's been done by great historians like Peter Lewis, Peter Crabtree, Neil Millar, other people. Um, I'm a storyteller of the game's history as opposed to a discoverer of the game's history. And, um, But the other way that golf history has been written is what I would call the historic novel, for lack of a better word, a book like The Greatest Game Ever Played uh, or Tommy's Honor, for that matter, which are books that are well-researched books and they're outstanding, outstanding writing and great storytelling. But the author consciously decides uh, to that in order to tell the story the way they want to tell it, they need to create scenes and create dialogue based on what they've done in the way of research. And that, to my mind, as a journalist in particular, means that it, wonderful as those books may be, I own every one, I've read them all, I loved reading them, they can't really fairly be described as history because there's a line that's crossed over that takes it out of the realm of pure history to my way of looking at things. And what I'm trying to do, and what I feel like I have a special skill to do given the career that I've had, is to tell the story of history as a narrative, as a tale that any person who tees up a ball on a Saturday afternoon can relate to and appreciate, uh, but using only things that can be traced to a person who saw it and wrote it down. And not to waver from that standard. Uh, so that, I think, is the difference between that's what's new about what I'm trying to do in my mind uh, is to write narrative history. And both of these stories are narrative histories. Uh, they begin at a moment in time. The Tommy book begins, as I know you know, Connor, with uh, the party at the Golf Inn, Mr. Leslie's Golf Inn, the night that Tommy came home wearing the belt. And the new book begins uh with Horace Hutchinson, the great English amateur and really the first great golf writer, uh, hearing that John Ball might do something crazy like win and going out to follow him home with uh, Dr. Laidlaw Purvis 
William Lee Law Purvis, and he go out to follow Ball home. And that's that's the opening scene of the book. And it, it expels out how the degree to which they foresaw that this would be something very significant in the history of golf uh, and how, in fact, what had happened was far more significant than even they could have imagined at that time. And then it goes on to tell the story of how golf came south to begin with, which, of course, has a lot to do with Tom and old Tom, young Tom and old Tom, and how the game came to the point of ball. And then what happens after that? And, of course, two things happen after that. One is that the Scots could not care a whit that it was an amateur who won the Open, the Scots professionals. What they cared about was that it was an Englishman. 100%. Who had won the <laughs> they an were, insult. An insult. They were not happy about that. And so that created this enormous rivalry between Scotland and England and launched essentially, as you can imagine, when the English take up golf in earnest, the very first thing on their plate is to defeat the Scots at their own game. That's the, that's the whole goal. And so the narrative backdrop of the story against which all these revolutionary developments are told is this amazing rivalry between Scotland and England that is essentially the kernel of what produces modern Ryder Cups and President's Cups, Curtis Cups, all that, is this great rivalry that then expands to other nations, honestly, just as the game expands. That's fantastic. So I think as we talk through the game's history, maybe we could explore your history. For the future golf writers out there, can you tell your story about becoming an author? What was your journey? And, and, you know, if you could walk us through your personal history, that'd be great. Well, you know, I've always been a person who has loved reading and writing. And I think my mother noticed that when I was a very young kid. When I was 12 years old, she put a book in my stocking at Christmas called Harvest Poems by Carl Sandburg. Uh, and I absolutely was swept away that, by that book, swept away by the musical sounds that words could make if you used them in the right way. And I became like a, I went on a giant poetry binge that lasted for three or four years where I read the complete works of Carl Sandburg, Robert Frost, T.S. Eliot, E.E. E. Cummings, various other poets. Uh, started writing really terrible poetry uh, that I, uh, of my own, uh, and which was only good enough to get the attention of English teachers who then really did a lot to help me along. Nancy Beckwith, Joseph Brodsky, Barbara Hines. I still remember the names of all the teachers who encouraged me. And I happened to live next door to a fabulous, uh, not very far from a fabulous, dusty old used bookstore called Riverdale Books. I grew up in Riverdale, Maryland. So I take my bicycle over there and my money from delivering newspapers. And you could buy the entire works of F. Scott Fitzgerald for $1.50 in hardback. Uh, so I was going over there, uh, buying giant armloads of books all the time. And then I would binge read certain authors. I read the complete works of Fitzgerald, the complete works of Orwell, the complete works of Hemingway. So I would do this. I did this all pretty much all my youth. And I imagined myself, took romantic pictures of myself in the snowy woods with the you know scarf wrapped around my neck and a navy pea coat on and all these other kinds of things. Imagining myself being the Oh, we're going to have to have see those for Twitter. Can yeah. you send those photos over? And poet, you know. <laughs> when I first started at newspapers, I wore a full-length 
double-breasted green trench coat, a black beret, and dark sunglasses everywhere I went. Oh my God, you we know, need these photos. Pretending to be George, George Orwell in Paris in 1917. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So I, uh, but there came a point just before I got into uh, high school where I became aware that T.S. Eliot had written the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock when he was 19 years old. And it suddenly dawned on me that I was so many light years behind that, that that was, it was just kind of a depressing moment of realization that I am not, Stephen Proctor is not going to become a great poet or a great fiction writer. He's only pretty much done drivel thus far. So how will he then make his way to a life in words, which I felt like I really needed to have. And so I was still reading around trying to figure it out. And it suddenly occurred to me that a lot of the writers that I love so well, Hemingway, Steinbeck, Jack London, Mark Twain, had all been newspaper reporters before they started writing novels. And I thought, well, maybe I, maybe I could do that. So I devoted myself then to becoming a newspaper writer. Uh, and I've always, until I retired in 2013, I didn't do anything but write for newspapers. I did that in high school, did that in college, did that professionally for 35 years. And luckily for me, in mid-career, I got a great editor named John Carroll, uh, who recognized the failed poet in me, I think, and uh, put, the, uh, put me in charge of the feature section of the newspaper and told me what he wanted was uh, the best gener- literary journalism created in the United States, and that uh, I could handpick the writers I wanted at the paper to produce it, and he would hire an editor who would teach me how to do it. And he did that. Her name was Jan Winburn, just a brilliant, brilliant woman. And it was with her that I first started to understand the story, the art of narrative storytelling. Uh, a couple years after I started on that path, John insisted that I do a fellowship because I'd always lived in Maryland. I'd never lived anyplace else. And, you, you know, you, you've never moved anyplace more than 20 miles from the place you were born. You know, that's not seeing the world. You, you have to go do this. And he basically got me into Stanford University where I was able to go to the Wallace Stegner fiction writing program for a year write short stories that were just as bad as the poetry I'd written in high school. Uh, But I did learn an awful lot about the techniques that are used to tell a true story. And while I'm not the person who can make up things and make them real, like a novelist can, I have developed a, a certain amount of skill in telling true stories. And so I spent the rest of my career, the last 15 years or so of my career, uh, maybe 20, uh, specializing in literary storytelling, uh, the sort of movement that began, you know, in the 19, late 1960s with Tom Wolfe and Gates Elise and Richard Ben Kramer and a lot of the narrative writers that have written so many great stories. So that was what I devoted my life to as a newspaper editor, uh, mostly as an editor. I didn't write the stories myself, um, I, uh, but I did learn how it was done. And late in my life, I was super lucky that John at the paper hired a man named Michael Packenham who edited the Tommy book for me, wonderful editor, passed away since then. But uh, he had the idea that nobody who is an editor can presume the edit the copy of writers if they do not write themselves. And many editors, and that was true of me too, had been editing stories for more than 15 years without ever writing one. And he, he just wouldn't permit that. He, uh, he was my, I supervised him in theory, uh, and it was highly theoretical. Um, but he would just come into your office and assign you a story. And he did it to the editor in chief, to the managing editor, to myself, the deputy managing editor in charge of him. And anybody who had a position of authority in the paper had to write for the book page. And that was it, period. 
And so I began doing that. And it, and I owe so much to Michael because he reconnected me with the thing that got me to be on this path in the beginning, which was I wanted to be a writer. I, I, uh, Did you feel like you had lost that? Like you'd lost your way a little bit? You were still associating yourself with words, but they might not have been your own? Yes, I would say I did feel that way, Connor, just a little bit. I mean, in the sense, if I worked really intimately on stories all my life, and a lot of great stories I'm lucky to have worked on, but I did feel like there's difference between that and creating it yourself. And once I started doing that again, uh, I wrote a lot for him after that, and uh, I realized how much I missed doing it myself. And so... It was not very many years after I'd gotten on that path with him and was back to writing some of my own things that it became clear to me that I was not going to be able to get to the age of 65 as a happy newspaper editor, partly because by then I had ascended to the level of the managing editor of the paper. And in the later years with the Internet onslaught on the business model, my principal job was to lay staff off and cut the budget. And I didn't have nearly as much time to or the same level of resources to try to do the work I like doing and that had made me start doing journalism to begin with. And so I decided that you need to plan for an early retirement and you know yourself, you're going to have to have things to do to write or you won't be happy. If I'm not working on a story, either as an editor or as a writer, I'm not ever happy. So I decided I was really into golf by that time and reading a lot of golf history. Whenever I take up anything, I immediately start binge reading the history of that particular thing. When I took up chess, I started reading it with Paul Morphy, the great chess player. Uh, when I took up horse racing, same thing, read about man of war. And uh, so I had been reading golf history and I thought, you know, that's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take these narrative skills that I've built up through these years and I'm going to try to tell the story of golf history. I just got to find a story to start with. And then that will lead me to other stories. And that's, that's basically the backstory there. And uh, when I went to St. Andrews, I saw the Tommy statue. I saw that it had been built by all the existing clubs in his age. And I realized, here's a working class kid that must have been pretty awesome. And there's a great story there. And I set out to tell that story. And the other one up occurred to me while researching, as we discussed a little earlier. I'm so glad you did. Um, what what advice would you give the men and women who are considering walking down a similar path? Uh, this is going to be slightly vulgar, but uh, one of my best friends who's a writer, Rafael Alvarez, said the act of being a writer is to have your ass in a seat. So in other words, you have to sit and write every day. Some days will be fruitful and some days will not. But if you aren't dedicated to the act of writing on a regular set schedule, uh, you won't accomplish things. And you, that, that is what writing is, sitting down every day and writing. So one of my favorite teachers had a, a thing that he would recite to us at the beginning of every journalism class was in his North Carolina accent. If you wanted to be a violinist, you would play the violin every day. And that was my, that's my main advice to a writer. If you want to be a writer, write every day and write what you love. Uh, and that's where you'll write best is something that you love. And then hopefully you will be able to persuade someone else to love it as well. But even if you don't, uh, you've done something for yourself. 
to create something that you loved. And I did the Tommy book for that reason. That was a great story. I love writing. I love researching. I researched it and wrote it. I had no idea. I hoped it would be published. I was prepared to publish it myself, like with Amazon or something, if that's what was required. Uh, but I was very naive and lucky to have been up, wound up where I am with it. But that's my advice to writers. Write every day. Write what you love. And keep banging on doors till someone else decides they love it too. Can we walk our listeners through your process of researching a golf history book? Certainly. How do you take that upon yourself? Well, the first thing I like to do is is binge read. So when I decided that I was going to do golf history, I think I've said this on your show too before, Connor. The first thing I did was to uh, I figured out that Herbert Warren Wind himself had decided what he thought were the seminal works of books, uh, works of golf, and had published them in a 69 volume library called the Classics of Golf Library. So my very first act was to buy the library the 69 volume library. It was a subscription service then. So every month they would send you new books and you know, you would be on a paid service where you got the new book. So I started by reading the 70 or 69 volumes in that library was step one. And what they do is they show you the pathways that you need to wander down to understand the game in a broad enough context to write about it with some authority and intelligence. And so those pathways are basically instruction, architecture, literature, history, and biography and memoir. So then I tried to read every book in those same categories that seemed to be seminal, whether or not it was part of the Classics of Golf Library. So that would include books like Golf Architecture in America by George Thomas and different other books. So before I felt comfortable taking on the Tommy story, I think I had read 150 books. And it wasn't until then that I felt like, well, you, you know enough now that you might, you might be able to say something smart. And those, that kind of research gives you the outline of the story that you think is there. Uh, and then from there, you have to go into the documentary research in newspapers and uh, other what you would call primary sources um, that can give you the the detail need to make the story come alive. And so that's my process. So I, I it took a long time. Now, you got to keep in mind that the entire time I researched the Tommy book, I was the managing editor of a newspaper. And that's a big job. It takes a lot. So I did it at night on the weekends reading and about. Eight or nine or ten years went by while I was doing that, and then I finally did retire. And honestly, I, I had my last day on a Thursday, I think it was, and on Friday I wrote the opening chapter of the Tommy book, quite literally, that morning, and, uh, and then just kept working on it. So I do that. Once I have all my newspaper research and all my book research done, I write a manuscript all the way through. That usually takes 18 months or something like that. Um, maybe a little less if there's a pandemic and you're not allowed to leave your house. <laughs> um, so I did that and uh, I then, sh I usually have a process and you know this cause you are one of them of sending my manuscript to test readers. 
I chose you because obviously you're incredibly knowledgeable about the period of history that I was writing about, and you're a good oh, friend. You nailed you nailed it too. I mean, like that's like the perfect book to send me. <laughs> yes, and I sent the. Uh, my brother-in-law is a big reader, you know, sometime golfer, but he reads all kinds of books, so he's just a very astute student of book writing. Ah, uh, yes, that's the original. No one's seeing the, the video. Original. I'm holding up the yeah. book right now. Yeah. The With the original title. cover, we won't talk about. Yeah. the um, Well, it, we, it's fine to talk about that. But uh, so I send it to seven different people. Club champion at my golf course, who's just a big reader. Uh, my former CEO, who is not a book reader, but he's a crazy golfer. Uh, and those are the people you want to read. So and then I hear what they have to say about it, how they respond to it, what they and often the things that they say trigger a thought in your mind that changes what you want to do. So then I go through a pre-process of rewriting the whole book based on the feedback I got from them. And in this case, this book, uh, very substantive changes in the book took place because of comments that people made. Uh, some chapters got completely redone, uh, this and that. So, and then after that, I, uh, I have one of my journalism friends edit the book, which is, uh, you know, to go through it, to really challenge all my assumptions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and make me, make me sure that what I'm saying is right and so forth. So, and then I'll send it off to a, a publishing house after that. In the case of the Tommy book, I had to send it to Peter Crabtree first, but when he sent it to Berlin, I was lucky that Peter Burns liked it and accepted it. And uh, in this most recent case, you know, I think Berlin was happy enough with the success of the Tommy book that uh I'm not sure they had actually <clears throat> read this book in full before they accepted it. Uh, so I, I think they just felt like if Stephen's written another book, we're going to publish that book because the other one, uh, other one has, has done nice. And for me, that's great. So let me ask you this question. Cause I, I find this when I research, write and narrate my own paltry podcast that is only 30 minutes long. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to stop researching. And I know we had a couple conversations uh, as you were researching the, the long and golden afternoon of it's, it's sometimes hard when you get addicted to the research to, to feel comfortable enough to pull the trigger on, I'm done researching, it's time to start writing. Boy, that is, and that's, that's especially true for me, Connor, because my wife will tell you that I'm a, I'm a crazy, crazy person like, like all writers. And I live in panicked fear that there will be something I ought to have read that I didn't read. And so it's hard, hard, hard for me to say, okay, that's enough, Stephen. By the time I started writing The Long Golden Afternoon, I had read 275 golf books. And, uh, and I felt like I still needed to read more. But I finally decided, you know, well, part of it was the pandemic came. And, you know, obviously I... I took that very seriously. I didn't want to mostly, most of my friends are older men uh, who golf in my leagues and stuff. And I didn't want to, I just wanted to be alone and stay by myself because I was mostly afraid of infecting someone else that was vulnerable and old as opposed to getting ill myself, which I obviously didn't want to do either. But so I decided, well, I'm going to start writing this book now. And, uh, but I still needed to golf and I didn't want to do public golf, but I'm involved in a couple of municipal golf courses, as I think you know. And so they allowed me to play the back nine every morning at sunrise. 
So that's what I did. I played the back nine. What, my what beautiful club. inspiration, by the way, too. Yes. Right? Played the back nine, came home, took a shower, sat down, wrote four hours. And I did that every single day, seven days a week uh, during the course of the pandemic. And uh, in that case, I was able to get the first draft of this book written in about 12 months, which is a lot faster than the Tommy book. But I, the Tommy book, I worked on more part time just because circumstances were sure. different. And you were a publisher uh, when you were, or you were an editor, right? When you started the research. When I started the research. But when I started the writing, I didn't even write full time. I wrote three days a week. And the other four days, I uh, did you know did stuff on my farm or sure. you know played golf or whatever it is you it's do. It's okay to be retired. a little retired, Steve. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> yeah, I was a little At least retired. that first year. Yeah. So then, uh, you know, so I, I, but I do have that difficulty is that I always, and I, Honestly, I haven't stopped reading since the book came out, and there were two or three things that I discovered, even in the late stages of the manuscript, some of them from new research published in Through the Green, Roger McStravick's magazine for the British Golf Collector Society, that there's always new research coming out in there. And so I had to, I was making tweaks in the book until they told me I, I couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> Love it. So what do, you, what do you hope with this new book? Uh, what do you hope your readers take away from the long and golden afternoon? Well, first off, um, the one thing I want above all things is for golfers to know their history in the way that baseball fans know theirs. Can you imagine a New York Yankee fan who doesn't know everything about Babe Ruth or Luke Gehrig? But how many golf fans have even heard of John Ball Yeah, or Harold Hill? Like less than 1%. Yes. And what I want to do is to write the story of golf history in a way that and I feel really good about the number of what I would consider to be average golfers on Twitter who really liked the Tommy book, who felt like it opened them up to the history of the game in a way other books have not. Uh, and that is my goal, to, to tell the story of the game in a way that average players can read it, enjoy it, and understand the great and glorious history that has led up to them putting this tee in the ground on this particular Saturday morning. Uh, and so few know, you know, I get, I sometimes, uh, get involved in conversations on Twitters that are ill-advised because they, they touch a negative chord with me, such as my most recent foray when somebody on Twitter, I think it was John Rahm or announced that Phil Mickelson was one of the 10 greatest golfers of all time. And, uh, and I, I made up, I made what I viewed to be a casual comment there, uh, and, you know, Twitter is Twitter. There was a a good deal of uh, vitriolic response. I think it'd be fair to say. And I, I, you know, I try not to get involved in uh, limboing that low. Uh, I just simply try to point out the realities. You know, the the names of golfers that you might consider an equal to Phil Mickelson or perhaps a superior. And you know, it's not hard to come up with twenty or twenty five of those. What what happens in modern golf is that Modern golfers believe that history begins with Almer and Palmer. Yeah. And the simple at, or truth at, of it is, as, far, as far back maybe as Ben Hogan. At the most, Ben yeah. Hogan. Yeah. But the thing about it is, the history of competitive golf is 162 years old. And over that period of time, there have been some pretty fine golfers uh, who have made some pretty amazing accomplishments that almost nobody knows anything about. And this is what I'm trying to do. So I'm trying to make them see by writing it in a way that they can read it and understand it as a golfer – uh, how great a player like John Ball was. Yeah. Uh, and, and to uh, do so in a way, may, if I may add, that's entertaining. 
You know, this yeah, is so- not a this isn't history class. I mean, I think you and I, in many ways, walk a similar path, but we just walk them differently, right? Like exactly. this podcast is that the podcast and the Society of Golf Historians is exactly that. Uh, there's a reason why we've never done a podcast on Tiger Woods or even Jack Nicholas. You know those stories. You know, I am not interested in, right. I, this is going to sound terrible, but <laughs> if I wanted to have more listeners, I do a podcast on Tiger Woods, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, every other episode, and it would be insanely high rated. But I'd rather tell you the stories that you might not know and put a modern day equivalent to how that affects you today. Right. And I think I every that do that thing comment. we do on this podcast, including this interview, connects people not with the history, but how we got here and how it relates to your game today. And that is exactly what I want to do, Connor. And that's why I love your podcast so much, because it appeals directly to my core instincts. Uh, and, you know, I do believe that uh, my books are not academic, except in the sense of thorough research what a person might consider to be an insane level of research in, in some places, but, uh, but they're just a story and there are no citations in the book of any kind. Uh, the back of the books have a section of notes that goes on for 30 and 40 pages. If you want to find out where every single thing came from, it's all detailed in there. Everything is accounted for. Uh, but the story itself is just a tale that unfolds one thing at a time. And, uh, that is that is what I think I'm contributing, you know, to to the history of golf is uh, I, I developed these special skills in my career. And I feel like among the historians that I know writing today, I feel like my approach is a little bit different. And um, that, I think, is something that has value. And obviously, the response from readers has suggested that perhaps I'm on to something. Yeah. You know, I look at this book, this recent book, The Long Long and Golden Afternoon, and in many ways, you follow the path of Darwin and his writings. And I know you were a great admirer of Darwin. As you researched this era of golf, did you, I don't know, deeper appreciation for his writings in this Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, you literally, I mean, you walk along Darwin. I mean, many of these things that you talk about were, you know, vigorously written by Darwin. It's it's There's really no uncanny. Doubt of it. Uh, Herbert Warren Wynn once said that he did not know of any serious golf writer who didn't get into it because of Bernard Darwin. And that is certainly true of me. Uh, I think one of the more important shaping discoveries of my life, as far as golf writing is concerned, was the book Playing the Light by Bernard Darwin, which uh, was one of the classics of golf library books. And when it came... Uh, the opening segment of that book is called Heroes of Old, and uh, it is uh, essays about John Ball, Harold Hilton, Harry Varden, James Braid, Sandy Hurd, all the the great characters, Freddie Tate, all the wonderful characters that people this book, The Long Golden Afternoon. And uh, I was so unbelievably enchanted by those stories and amazed by all these accomplishments that I'd never heard about that I couldn't believe no golfers had ever heard about. And there's the Harold Hilton book, the essay in particular, has probably my favorite line and my driving inspiration was uh, he's talking about Hilton and all the great things he's done. And he doesn't want this to be a statistical article, but he says, but 
Perhaps I should set down his accomplishments as the years go ruthlessly on and make dim the brightest of records. And that just struck me so deeply. And I felt like Bernard in reading Bernard. And of course, I then immediately started binge reading Bernard. And I've now read 22 collections of Bernard's work in total. Uh, and um, I felt like his mission in life was to preserve the memories of this great past of golf, in particular, the era before the war, uh, because Darwin worked until 19 into the 1950s. And he, I think he uh, as late as 1953, if my memory serves correctly. But he saw Hogan. He saw Bobby Jones. He said, but he nobody would ever convince him that there had been a greater age in golf than the one before the war. And the, the title of my book is The Darwin Line. He uh, he's writing about the uh, the winding down. Uh, and he says, and then came the war and the long golden afternoon was over. And I read that and I thought, that's the real title. I had had another title in the past, which also was stolen from Bernard Darwin. But I thought this one captured it better. So I ended up using that. I mean, it's remarkable. Darwin, um, great times happen to lead to great writers. And Darwin lived in perhaps the greatest era of golf history, an era of constant change. How blessed are we not only to have his words, but almost his poetry. I mean, you say he shared the history, but he really shares the passion of that era. His words are so passionate. It's not dictatorial. His whole it's, approach it's very, to life is passionate. Yeah. You know, he's passionate about driving on a train and seeing the stations and the order they come in before he gets to his destination. So Bernard just had a, a very romantic outlook on life in general. And, uh, that has conveyed in all of his writing. You know, his work as a newspaper correspondent for the Times uh, is mind-boggling. He covers his first tournament in 1908 uh, when James Braid wins the Open Championship at Presswick. And so a lot of this age, uh, Bernard writes about upon reflection. He was then competing as an amateur in a lot of these events. So he saw the players, met the players, knew the players, and saw the events. But he didn't start writing about them until until the long golden afternoon was mostly, in fact, over. Uh, he started writing for the Times in 1908. And uh, but the writing that he does uh, in covering tournaments is it's interesting because, you know, obviously I researched the history through newspapers of all these tournaments and the, the golfing annual in particular. But uh, and Golf Illustrated uh, and uh, the writing is mostly pedestrian, honestly, about the game. Straightforward, halfway decent. But then Bernard comes on and starts writing for the Times, and it's like an order of magnitude chain in the elo uh, change in the eloquence of what's written. So he's just, you know, he comes from a super brainiac family. His grandfather was obviously origin of the species, Charles Darwin. And he was a very gifted man in a lot of ways. The, the topic of your new book covers a wide expanse of time and changes to our game. Arguably, this era shaped the game as we know it today. How do you go about writing this book with so many players to cover, technology changes, rules changes, expansion out of Scotland? How did you take this upon your shoulders? And, and, and I should say this to the folks at home, you may want to hear more about this book, and we're going to have Proctor back on the show, and we're going to go into the depths of this book. But Right now, it's more of the process. You know, this is the pre-release interview, if you will. Thank you. 
this is a, this was a really daunting thing, Connor. And honestly, uh, I, 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 I mean, I expected like War and Peace at first. Uh, <laughs> I really yeah. thought that there were going to be like eighteen editions, like the it James Braid book. It is. I think the Tommy book was about 180 pages to read, thereabouts. And I think this one is about 250 pages to read, maybe slightly more. Uh, so it's 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 quite a bit longer than the Tommy book. It's a much more daunting challenge from a storytelling standpoint. The the story of an individual man and your your central character is a much easier story to tell. This book has, you know, half a dozen or more main characters. John Ball, Harold Hilton, John Henry Taylor, Freddie Tate, James Braid, Harry Varden. So you have all these characters to introduce. And so the way I have chosen to do that, and it's not dissimilar to the Tommy book in the sense of uh, the there's I take a thematic approach chapter by chapter. Uh, so. A chapter might be there's a chapter in the new book called Minds at Work, uh, which is another line stolen from the musical Hamilton. Looking for a mind at work. Uh, anyway, uh, that is about the in intellectual power that people began to bring to the game that they love and the influence that's had and continues to have over the game of golf over all these years. There are chapters that are devoted to technological change. But the basic framework of the story is Scotland versus England for supremacy at the Royal and Ancient Game. And during the unfolding of those open championships, amateur championships, international matches, great matches, all the things that contributed to that rivalry, we learn chapters at a time about the emergence of the English professional, for instance, or uh, the introduction of the rubber core ball. Uh, which obviously was an apocal event. And so it, it's organized somewhat thematically, but it's, it's a very, it was a very difficult challenge as a writer. I was deathly afraid when I finished that I'd failed to meet the challenge, uh, which is what you always think when you're a writer, when you write something, you think this is garbage. I don't know if I can even show this thing, but you're not. <laughs> and uh, so, but when I showed it to my friend Lee Horwich, who had traveled with me on the North to the Links of Doorknock tour and has been with me, uh, my my best journalism friend ever and one of my very best friends in life. He really, really liked the book. He felt that it was something special. Your response to the draft was very, very encouraging. Obviously, I knew that if the book worked, you would be the person that liked it. That was one of the reasons that I chose you because it's your era. This is what you do. Yeah, I love it. And I thought if Connor doesn't like it, well, then I have failed to meet the challenge. And uh, so uh, I'm told that I that I that I did okay. And uh, I guess you know we'll see how. I think it's a little harder, probably a little more challenging book than Tommy for some some of the readers who read Tommy. Uh, but I, I still have an instinct that people will like it because it's people like a story, and it's a great story. It is an amazing story. It is our story, right? I mean, it's the story of the game of golf as we know it today. It is exactly everything that you know about golf today, and literally the arguments over the rubber core ball could not be more identical to the rollback 100%. arguments they're hearing today. They couldn't be more identical. They are, in fact, the same arguments, many of the same words. Uh, nobody had invented that horrible word bifurcation yet, but that's what they meant uh, when they were talking about it. So. so let me ask you this. Before we move on from the book, uh, if you can, what was your biggest discovery or surprise from your research? Boy, that's a wonderful question. 
I guess I would say what was like everybody, I think, like most golfers, I kind of know some of the facts of this story. I know that between them, Harry Varden, James Braid, and John Henry Taylor won 16 Open Championships before the war. Uh, but what was surprising to me was when you see the story of how that unfolded, when you see it happening in real time, how unexpectedly it all developed in certain ways. Uh, when Harry Varden won his first Open, exactly zero people followed him. Zero. Uh, everybody followed John Henry Taylor. He was considered the great golfer. And so they're just little things like that. The level of accomplishment that people reached in that age. One of the things I wanted to do in the book was, okay, so if you looked at the accomplishment of all these golfers, John Ball, James Braid, Taylor Varden, all of them, Harold Hilton, and you looked at it through the lens of what a modern player thinks. Okay, so we judge all players now by how many major championships did you win in your lifetime? And uh, I'm a believer in made, what is a major championship obviously has evolved over time. Uh, in this age, the amateur championship is absolutely a major championship. There's two of them, the amateur and the open. And later when they invent the British PGA championship in 1903, that news of the world championship becomes is viewed as a major championship. It is a major champion. And when you look at it that way, you know, Harry Varden is an immortal. He's universally acknowledged. And he was the best player of that age by any standard that you could use. But he doesn't have the most majors. Uh, the most majors are John Ball and James Braid. And uh, so it's just these kinds of accomplishments that make you realize how grossly underrated players are. Uh, and, you know, it was very exciting uh, when to see a person who is 51 years old, Phil Mickelson, uh, win a PGA championship. But uh, John Ball won an amateur when he was 50. And Bobby Jones always felt that that was the hardest tournament to win. You know, you had to win seven or eight singles matches at 18 holes and anything can happen in an 18 hole singles match, as Johnny Goodman could tell you. Uh, and uh, but Ball did that eight times. That's just crazy. Unbelievable. Yeah. I always and, tell uh, people, like, don't ever sleep on John Ball. I see these polls of the even greatest amateurs of all time. And and I even push back sometimes. Like, I, I, I get, I, like, if you want to say it's Bobby Jones, that's fine. But I'm like, don't you dare sleep on John Ball. He John Ball Jr. won more amateur championships than any golfer that's ever lived at that highest level. I, and, and at the time... This was an age when amateurs were equal, exactly, often equal yeah. to professionals, yeah, not not like it is now. And uh, you know, so I uh, I really feel, I guess, the thing that amazed me the most is how many incredible unknown accomplishments exist in the history of golf. Uh, I felt like, in a lot of ways, Tommy was the most underappreciated golfer in history uh, when I did that book, uh, and part of it was to bring that make people understand what a truly magnificent player he was. Uh, I feel that same exact way about John Ball, uh, maybe even more so, because most people could tell you who young Tom Morris was. They might not be able to tell you much about him, except that he died young of a broken heart uh, uh, or whatever the, the legend is. But not anybody, hardly anybody I've ever met on a golf course. If I, I frequently ask people, have you ever heard of John Ball Jr.? Just because I'm annoying. Uh, and uh, nine majors, he has as many as Hogan. No big deal. 
Yeah, so they don't, nobody knows who he is. Yeah. And uh, I find that depressing yeah. uh, at one well, level. Well, Paul certainly and, didn't help himself. He's probably content in heaven right now that nobody remembers who he is because he didn't want people to know who he was when he lived. Yes, no. <laughs> he got interviewed by a newspaper reporter once and he said, I can't think of anything interesting to say. Uh, he did. He hated. He hated uh, being made a fuss over, which he was all his life, uh, and everything. So you know, he's an enigmatic character at the very best. But I, one of my favorite stories before we jump to the next question, though, is after winning the uh, the British Amateur, he jumped off the train early before it got to his stop because he knew that all the locals were there at the stop to celebrate his victory, and then he just walked home. <laughs> yeah, but you know, leaving everybody defense, stranded. He, he comes across as a bit of a jerk there. Oh, and that was funny. probably not a very good thing to do. But he had already endured that at least a half a dozen times, uh, where literally they would have uh, the fishermen of Hoy Lake had a particular interest in John Ball because he was a farmer. And I think they related to him in a way they couldn't relate to Harold Hilton because Harold Hilton, you know, worked as an executive in insurance and other things. And so they, they felt like he was a toff, which would be a British slang for a, you know, rich person, which Hilton was not. Hilton had a scrape for a living all his life. But the point is, Ball appealed to them in a way that very few people did. So they literally would have a horse-drawn carriage with no horses. It would be drawn by blue Jersey fishermen, uh, literally pulling John back to the Royal Hotel for the celebration of, of, of the victory, whichever one it was. And uh, I think after a period of five uh, time— uh, he he kind of tired of that, and and, uh, and he uh, decided he just couldn't do it one more time. So he was a very uh, shy man. I think that kind of endeared him to Brits in a way, because you know Brits are mostly understated folks, and he uh, yeah he was shy. He didn't he didn't want any of that. All right, we're going to jump off this topic, and we're going to go into the fact that you're about to go on one of the greatest golf history sabbaticals I've ever heard of. Can you talk a little bit about your upcoming journey that makes me jealous? Uh, yes, and uh, I, this is one of those things that is... I might not even know, share this part of the podcast. I'll be so mad to hear it, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, uh, obviously, nobody who writes golf history books is going to get rich doing that. You know, I, uh, I'm going to end up making some modest sum of money on the Tommy book and, and maybe, maybe on this other book as well. Uh, not anything that would, you know... Get not me buying Lambos, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not doing anything. Two cents an hour, probably. You know, of, of the amount of time that was put into it. But one thing it has made me is 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 a somewhat well known person in the world in the world of golf history. And so I have been engaged by uh, a outfit called Bonnie Wee Golf, that is a luxury touring company in Scotland. And I happen to know the proprietors because my former CEO, who is uh, a lot better off than I am. Uh, frequently tours with them in Scotland and other places. So they have thought it was worth their while to come and play in a golf tournament that he hosts every year in Orlando that I've played in for a dozen years, uh, partly because he was the boss and I needed to play in it. But I love playing in it. It's a great event. And uh, so David Harris and Stuart Morrison are the proprietors of Bonnie Wee Golf. And I met them through this tournament. And at the most recent tournament, in the spring, uh, two years ago on old Tom's birthday, they, they, they start, they wanted to do a thing called the old Tom Morris golf trail, which would be 
uh, a loop of 18 golf courses that would give you a insight as a golfer into two things. The nature of Tom's work as a golf architect to the extent that it still survives, and that's a challenge, uh, but also to help understand the way that old Tom, as the font of wisdom in the game, spread golf throughout Scotland and, and England, but this tour is strictly in Scotland, uh, and ultimately helped to spread it around the world. So it's really an opportunity for golfers to just go and commune with old Tom over these courses at multiple different levels. When they did it, they asked me to write an intro for their website as a favor. They are friends of mine. I wrote the insight, the intro as a favor a year and a half or two years ago. Uh, they didn't realize, I don't think, uh, they were, you know, that they needed to, that they couldn't do this without the approval of the St. Andrews Links Trust, which, which owns the likeness of old Tom. And so they weren't able to get the trail launched in time because they, uh, for his birthday, um, because they hadn't quite gotten over that hump. They did eventually. And, uh, so now they are launching the, they launched the trail earlier this month, as you know, uh, in anticipation of the 150th open. And so, uh, somehow or another, they decided they felt it was worth their while to, uh, I'm not a person, you know, when you retire at age of 56, as I did, you know, you make certain choices. And one of them is that your lifestyle will be restricted by the fact that you have given up 10 years at least of earning money. Uh, and you know, my lifestyle is restricted by that. I, uh, you know, I'm a muni golfer and uh, I can't I don't have a lot of money for golf travel now. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that's just a reality. But I can write books. So, you know, that makes me happier than most things. So. I, I would never be able to afford to do this sort of thing. I was crestfallen, really, because the last time uh, when my book came out for Tommy, that was such a big event in my life that my wife and I went and spent three weeks in Scotland and England uh, playing some golf courses in preparation for book number two, but mostly touring with the book and uh, having lunch at the Royal and Ancient with Peter Crabtree and Sheila Walker and all these other wonderful things. And I knew I was not going to be able to do that again because uh, the money is just not there. Uh, so I was disappointed not to be able to go again uh, and support the book in whatever way I could. Uh, and then Bonnie Week Off decided that, uh, well, we, we think it's worth our while to have you come and play the trail and we'll bear the entire expense of your trip. Uh, you will pay nothing. All we ask is that you write something about your experience, whatever you want, no, no holds barred, no restrictions, write something uh, about the experience of, of walking in the footsteps of old Tom, which is like, that's a don't throw me in that briar patch type of an offer there. <laughs> right, right. So How do you not take that up? Yeah. Thrilled. And so I'm going to leave on the 1st of June and I'll be there for the whole month of June. Uh, but they have graciously allowed me to have a pause in St. Andrews where I can be there for the launch day of the book, which happens to be old Tom's birthday, June the 16th. And I have an appearance lined up at Waterstones Bookstore in St. Andrews where I'll be able to read from the book and take questions from the audience. And hopefully there'll be other things that I might be able to arrange between now and then. But uh, the trail begins in Ashkerness, which is in the Outer Hebrides. And it goes from there to Doorknock, all through the highlands, down through Cruden Bay, Montrose, Carnoustie, into East Lothian, 
where you play Mirafield, North Barrack, all the great, a lot of the great East Lothian venues, and it ends at Makrahanish. Oh. I'm not going to be able to do the tour that way uh, because this year tea times are quite difficult to get at the major courses in Scotland in the high season because so many tours have been rolled over from previous years that were canceled by the virus. And so I'm going to start in Makrahanish and finish at Carnusti. Uh, but doesn't really matter what order you play them in. I mean, you got to start. Makrahanish, they say, is the greatest opening hole in golf. That's a great way to start off a trip. It's also one of the surviving old Tom holes that survives relatively intact. One of the challenges of doing this will be, uh, now some courses like Cullen Links are pretty much the way old Tom laid them out. Uh, but many, many, most of these courses have changed dramatically since old Tom laid them out. Um, and I think a lot of them, nothing survives, but the routing and maybe not even that in certain cases. So some of it will be, you know, about his style as an architect, but a lot of it will be just be about, uh, the spreading of golf around. I'm not, obviously I need to go play it before I have an idea of what to write, but I'll, I'll have something to say. I feel sure. What, do you have any expectations going in uh, for following in the footsteps of old Tom Morris? Well, I guess my expectation is one of incredible excitement and pleasure to play so many great <laughs> I'm jealous. Scottish courses. I don't get I mean, jealous often. Uh, I'm jealous. You know, Makrahanish is special to me. And, uh, uh, and one of the books, and I did a podcast with uh, Trap Draw with a uh, man I really adore, Jim Hartzell and Michael uh, Michael Wolf, the, the golf, the agent and golf book collector. And we, we did a thing about our 15 favorite golf books. And one of the only books that was on everybody's list was to the Lynxland by Michael Bamberger. And that was another one of those books that I read early on that I thought I have to get to Scotland. I, I, I have to do this. And I wanted to go to Makrahanish, but when you, when you get down to planning golf travel in Scotland, you realize that Makrahanish is not easily gotten to. It is way the heck out of every way. You have so, to literally want to go there to get there. You don't accidentally show up there. Right. So even though I've, this will be my fourth trip to Scotland, I'm so lucky to have done, gone so many times, uh, I have not managed to make my way to Makrahanish, which I feel like is uh, going to be a spiritual experience for me to be down there. Uh, and, you know, so uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I think I'm looking Probably I'd say I'm most looking forward to the ones that are the most original. Ashkernish, Cullen Links. Uh, I'm planning to play all those older ones with Hickory Clubs and play some of the courses with modern clubs. But, uh, but I'm definitely planning to play several of the more, what I would call, aboriginal old Tom Links uh, with Hickories uh, to get a little closer to the spirit of the game as it was when he uh, designed these golf courses. And I'd like to get, you know, I've written a lot about old Tom and his influence on the game, but I feel like this will be, even for a person like me who spent a lot of time studying it, this will be an eye-opening experience as to old Tom's importance. And I hope to be able to convey that in whatever it is I write at the end. I'm excited. I really am. I'm excited for you, jealous of you, but very excited for you. Well, you can be jealous of me because you're at Augusta National and Oakmont and uh, great golf courses every weekend of your life. It is we who are jealous <laughs> every, of you. My wife so, would agree with you. That's not factual, but that's how she remembers it too, oddly enough. 
<laughs> well, it seems to me that every time I see you on Twitter, you're teeing off someplace that I die to play and have never played. It's, it's so, all green screen. It's all green screen. Yeah. The whole thing's a lie. Anyway, you, you have a life. You have a wonderful life. And uh, so uh, it's fine to be jealous of this. This is, a, uh, this is a rare opportunity. And I'm so grateful to David and to Stuart. And, uh, and I'm so happy that they believe that I'll bring something of value for them. I think it'll be great I, for all parties involved. I think I think it's going to be a tremendous I, uh, uh, investment that pays off for them to have you out there. I certainly am going to do every single thing I can to make that true. Uh, and you know, it'll be it'll be obviously incredible for me. I'll get to see a lot of my historian friends in St. Andrews, uh, including Roger McStravick and David Hamilton, and hopefully Peter and 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 those folks. So I'm really looking forward to that. I've been lucky that. Uh, I got invited to be part of a group there in St. Andrews uh, called the Literati of the Links, which David Hamilton began. Uh, and it's a group of people who write about golf history. And I was really flattered to be invited to join it. I can't, they mostly do their meetings in person. They did it, but during the pandemic, they did them all on Zoom. So I could take part in all of those. Uh, and it's just people introducing new work on golf history that they're doing talking about it and you just learn an awful lot you meet a lot of great historians and uh so i'm i'm i don't know if there'll be a literati meeting what i there but that'd be a high priority for me if there was so uh but just to meet those people and to know them and to see the work they do and and to be inspired by them is something that i that i truly enjoy and look forward to fantastic now, before I let you go, how can our listeners purchase The Long and Golden Afternoon? I understand they can purchase it now, pre-order, correct? It can be pre-ordered. My preference is that you do that on Barnes & Noble. I like to convince them that one day they might wish to carry the actual store. Uh, if you are not published by a U.S. publisher, it is virtually impossible to get into an American bookstore. And uh, I like to have my books bought in a bookstore because bookstores are where I started becoming a writer, Riverdale Books in particular. So can they and go online the, right now and order it through yes. Barnes & Noble? Mm-hmm. Okay. You can and, do that through Barnes & Noble. You can also do it through Amazon if that's your preferred vendor. Uh, that's the only way to get it in the United States or Europe, in England or uh, the United Kingdom, anywhere in the United Kingdom. It'll be available in your local bookstore. I have the joy of having people send me pictures of themselves buying the book in remote places like Oban or Doorknock or wherever. And that's just always that's always a thrill to see it on a bookstore shelf someplace in a remote corner of Scotland. Uh, so I, my preference is if you can buy it from a bookstore, please do that. Uh, and otherwise, uh, you can buy it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And we the release date, did I hear that right, was June 16th? It's June 16th in the United Kingdom because my books are published in Edinburgh, which is something I take enormous pride in, even though it probably uh, isn't the best for me financially in certain ways. Uh, don't care, rather be published in Scotland. They make beautiful books and they care about bookstores. That's why I love being an author for Berlin because bookstores are what matter to me and they care about bookstores. So I, um, I um, am thrilled to be published by them. They're, they And they produce beautiful physical books. The book will not be available in the United States until August. Uh, in the, uh, the release date in the United States right now is August 23rd. Might get moved up a teeny bit, but... Uh, so if you order it pre-order, you probably won't get it till August in the United States. All right. Good to know. Well, Stephen, I envy this trip, this sabbatical you're about to go on. I'm rolling my eyes if you can't see me on camera, folks. <laughs> I am envious. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for joining us more specifically before you depart on this great sabbatical. 
Well, Abby, enjoy talking to you about it when I get back. Connor, you know, I, I have to say how thankful I am to you. I feel like you have been all along the number one supporter of my work. Uh, I would not be anywhere near as well known as I am had it not been for you. And uh, I will always, always be grateful for that and for your podcast and for all the people who listen and who like golf history and choose to read the books I write. So thank you for having me. I appreciate the unfounded praise. (laughs) You would have done fantastic without it, I promise you. Great work deserves to be written and deserves to be read. And I think people were going to find you either way. But thank you so much, Stephen. I appreciate it. Well, have a great day, Connor. And I will uh, be reporting from the old Tom Morris trail on Twitter for all those who follow me. Oh, good. You're going to be on Twitter. That's great. I will be doing that the whole time. uh, And help me out. Is it S. Proctor? It's at S. Proctor Golf. Capital S, capital P, capital G. There you go, folks. Make sure to follow Stephen Proctor on his trip through Scotland on the old Tom Morse Trail. I'm telling you, that's going to be fantastic. I'm so jealous. It's going to be it amazing. It's going to be something, Connor. It's going to be the trip of a lifetime, no doubt of it. Oh, it's so good. Thank you again, Stephen. All right, my friend. Have a good day. I hope you enjoyed my interview with my dear friend, Stephen Proctor. If you haven't done it yet, consider purchasing his book, Monarch of the Green, and pre-ordering his new book, The Long and Golden Afternoon. I know we didn't write this book with me in mind, but it really is the perfect book. This book walks you through arguably the most important moments in our golf history and helps explain how our game evolved to the modern game of golf that we enjoy today. I wish my friend well on his journey to rediscover old Tom Morris and hope he returns to tell us all glorious tales from his travels. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. Mm -hmm.